Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. A podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. What is up, everybody? I am flying solo today. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, you just heard the intro. And there's two voices. There's me and Ryan Pollock. But Ryan and his awesome wife just had their baby boy so we got to keep them in our prayers ryan should be back on the show next week they're living their best life ryan's birthday was actually just a day a couple days ago too and they took the little one out to this little outdoor brewery i saw it on the gram that's how i know i'm not a stalker i swear but it looked awesome so it looks like they're having an awesome time i was chatting with them yesterday and everything is good praise god um babies are awesome i think we should have more babies I think everybody should have at least 15 babies. <laughs> don't tell my wife that. Uh, she might get mad at me. Um, hey, babe, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I'm really excited for the Pollock family. And uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful, healthy baby boy. So today's episode really just wanted to kind of give a foundation, kind of a bird's eye view of what we're going to be doing moving forward. Uh, for those who were w- listening to our last episode, you know, we announced that this next series, we're actually going to go through the, all the books of the New Testament. And Ryan's the crazy one who suggested this idea. And I was the crazy one who said, you know what? That sounds awesome. Let's do it. And so, you know, usually in the past, we've done individual studies over various books um, or general topics on biblical theology. But this is a really awesome opportunity to just really go through the books um, we're not going to go super, super deep into any of the books in particular. We're going to do about one episode per book-ish, hard-ish on that. We'll see how that plays out. Um, but really trying to give you you know, the general background of the book, themes of the book, the outline, the thematic structure of the book, the literary structure of the book, in order to help you, hopefully help you read these books better. I think a lot of the times we dive into these books of the Old or the New Testament without really knowing the context, without knowing the historical setting or the audience or the author even. And then we try to read it and we're like, man, I'm sure this is great, but I have no idea what's going on and I'm confused. And you kind of just keep reading until all of a sudden you get to that one like juicy nugget of a quote. And you're like, mm, this is the only reason I'm probably reading this because it's one juicy nugget of a quote. Uh, but when you really understand all the books in their context, Um, It really just opens up your eyes to what God is speaking through his through his word. Um, And so this first episode, I'm going to give a general overview of the New Testament and particularly the Gospels in general. Right. How it was formed. What was the timing authorship kind of some over some stuff. Um, and so really kind of set us up for success so that way next week when Ryan gets back on the show, we can hit the ground running with the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew. So as always, we do have a Greek word of the day. So the Greek word of the day is diatheke. So diatheke is the word for Greek word for covenant or testament. So you'll see that there's an old and a new testament, but the word testament itself is actually the word for covenant, right? Um, we use the word testament, it's, like it, it's an English thing, right? Um, but it's the old covenant and the new covenant, right? The old testament and the new testaments were diatheke. Um, and so, you know, we have this idea of like the last will and testament of somebody, right? Um, that's not really uh, what we mean when we say the Old Testament versus the New Testament, right? It's a covenant. And what is a covenant but an exchange of persons, right? Wh- what what persons? God and humanity, 
right? Uh, God inviting humanity into his family in and through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, right? So Diotheke is going to be really important. We're going to try to talk about it as we talk about all these books because it comes up a ton in almost every single book. Um, That's a lie. It comes up in a lot of books, (laughs) Um, especially uh, with Paul and then basically every gospel that has some kind of um, Last Supper discourse, which all of them do except for John. John doesn't explicitly have the Last Supper there. It's the setting, um, but the breaking of the bread doesn't actually happen in John. And we're going to talk about that when we get to John, so stay tuned. Uh, Bum, 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 cliffhanger. Um, Anyway, so obviously when talking about the New Testament, we have to start off by talking about the Gospels. And then from the Gospels, we have the book of Acts. And then from there, we have Paul's corpus, right? Lots of Paul's letters. And then we have have what's called the Catholic epistles, right? The Catholic epistles. And then we get into some other texts. We get into Johannine literature, which is technically a Catholic epistle as well. And then we get into like the book of Revelation and all that craziness in there. Um, So there is an overall structure of the New Testament, right? It was organized by very smart people a long time ago in order to kind of help break open the word a little bit, have it a bit more accessible. So when the church, by the way, the New Testament was formed by the the Catholic Church and canonized by the Catholic Church. So if you're not a Catholic listening to this, uh, you're reading a Catholic book if you ever read the Bible. Fun fact, who gave you the Bible? The church did. Um, Anyway, I digress. Um, But uh, yeah, when you read um, the New Testament, it's not necessarily in chronological order, right? The Gospel of Matthew wasn't necessarily the first gospel written, even though for a long time it was thought to have been the first gospel written. And an argument can still be made that it was the first gospel written, but wasn't necessarily so. Romans was not Paul's first letter, right? Um, Romans was definitely not written before or before some of Paul's other letters, but it's his longest and most intense letter. The, the, his you know, may, all his major themes are basically in Romans. So the church thought it prudent to start off with the bang. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so when, just, that's just one thing to know. So when you're reading the New Testament, if you're starting from Matthew and going all the way through Revelation, know that it's not necessarily chronological, right? It's not chronological. So when it comes to the Gospels in particular, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's two sections of the gospel, right? We have what are called the synoptic gospels and then John. <laughs> so the synoptic gospels, um, synoptic, you see that uh, the word for synonymous, right? So basically in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of parallel passages. There's a lot of parallel stories. There's a lot of parallel in general. And so this term synoptic came into play because there were so many similarities that scholars, you know, I would argue probably rightfully interpreted that there was some kind of common source between these three gospel writers, right? Um, And then we have John and John's gospel. There's really not a lot of similarities between John's gospel and the rest of the synoptics, right? John's gospel is kind of its own animal. It's its own thing. We'll talk about it more when we get there, Um, but it's very, very different. So we have the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then John. Um, And so, you know, arguably you could, you could then, you know, say that, John's gospel came later or last uh, because it's so different and because he wasn't as worried about talking about everything that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about. But we're going to talk about that more when we dive into the gospel of John here in, I can tell you, four weeks time because it's the fourth book of the New Testament. So 
let's let's just you know going back to the gospels as a whole, right? The first and foremost is that obviously the authority of the gospels is ultimately it's it's rooted and grounded in, in divine inspiration, right? But that being said, there's also historicity about the gospels, right? So the church has always advocated that the gospels are historically reliable. Every once in a while you have kind of these new age peeps um, or these historical critics that will say, oh, you know, you can't take the gospel or the New Testament as history. It's not history. That's not really valid proof whether or not Jesus was a real person or not. Um, and so it's, it's kind of annoying though, because um, we have more historical evidence of Jesus being a person, if you include the gospels, than we do of Julius Caesar being a person, right? Um, not only do we have the gospels and the New Testament, the writings, but we also have um, Josephus um, writing about Christos and, and riots, and we have other sources, histor- non-biblical, right, historical sources of Jesus. But we also have the, the actual New Testament itself, which the church has always said is historically reliable. Now, there's a caveat there, right? Um, it, it's also not written with modern readers in mind. Um, they're not as concerned about modern readers because they're not modern. It was written 2,000 years ago. So while the Gospels are historically reliable, it doesn't mean they're chronological in and of themselves, right? Um, and so before we get into that, you know, just looking at you know these four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, what the church says is that these are the only four valid Gospels, right? There's other Gospels that were written. There's pseudo-Gospels, or like you've probably heard of the Gospel of Thomas, and those are not dogmatic-inspired Gospels um, because they didn't come from the apostolic age, right? So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all from the apostolic age. Now, obviously, Matthew and John being disciples of Jesus themselves, right? Matthew, the tax collector, John, uh, the beloved, right? And we'll get into authorship and stuff and some debates on that when we talk about it, but in view the historical um, and the traditional view is that Matthew, tax collector, wrote Matthew, and John, the beloved, wrote John. Now, but when you get into Luke and Mark, you're like, well, those weren't disciples. Well, here's here's the situation. Luke was a doctor who was converted, arguably, probably, by St. Paul. And so, and then Mark was the companion of Peter. So, Gospel of Mark is really Peter's gospel, right? It's everything that Mark heard from Peter and and written down. And Luke's gospel is arguably the gospel of St. Paul. Now, St. Paul, you could say, well, St. Paul wasn't one of the 12 disciples. No, but he was from the apostolic age. And obviously, St. Paul, (laughs) writing other New Testament books, was kind of a big dog disciple, right? He was was counted uh, among those leaders of the early church. He wasn't a pillar like Peter, James, and John, but he was definitely an apostle who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that you might hear, and I don't know if you might hear this, if you're a nerd like me, you hear it sometimes, is that originally this authorship could be debated because the original gospels were circulated um, as kind of letters, and so they didn't have working titles and all this stuff. Um, but that's that's historically, I mean, pretty unlikely. Um And one of the reasons why this argument is kind of just garbage is because there's literally not one shred of physical evidence of any gospel not having a title. So the people that like uh, created this theory created it out of thin air. There is no evidence that there is ever a gospel without 
a title or a letterhead. It's just a working theory that if if it's a letter, then therefore, you know, it probably didn't have a, a working title, which is just garbage. Anyway, it's an a priori statement. Um, and but also too, the early church wasn't dumb. They had to show the authority and the gravity and the weight of whatever of these letters or books were were to be read in a liturgical setting. Right. The we have to remember that all the letters of the New Testament were originally read within the setting of the Mass, right? They didn't call it the Mass. They called it the breaking of the bread, right? And it was only after a couple of centuries that the church then had to come together, take all of the circulating letters and Gospels that were being read at, through the breaking of the bread throughout the Christian world at that time, come together and say, okay, which ones are canon? Because some are being read that definitely aren't canon. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so, you know, we have this argument about the canon of the gospels, which, which gospels can be included, which gospels shouldn't be included and all this stuff. And a few heresies come up, you know, one being like the Ebionites who they literally only use like this kind of weird version of Matthew and they dismiss the other gospels as non-canonical. Um, we have Marcion who once again, uh, had this like really, really weird downsized version of Luke, um, Luke's gospel dismiss the other gospels. And then we have the Gnostic communities who, that, like the gospel of Thomas and other pseudo gospels. Um, and the church was like, no guys, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. Here are the four gospels. These are historically reliable and they come from apostolic sources. So they're, they're reliable accounts of the life of Jesus, right? The reliable accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, in one of the books that we're going to be using, um, which I encourage you to get throughout this study is the Ignatius Catholic study Bible, New Testament. Um, this is a fantastic, now it's a New Testament Bible, right? But it's a study Bible. So it's a big boy Bible. It's pretty big. It's thick, um, but it is great. The commentary in this Bible and the study Bible is really amazing. Um, and so whoever is listening to this, if you work for Ignatius Catholic study Bible, hats off to you, bro. You did a good job, but their intro to all their letters and all their books are fantastic. Um, and so one of the things that they point out in the intro of the gospels is this threefold formation of the gospels, right? So we have stage one. What is stage one? Well, that's just the life of Jesus, right? Um, Jesus, you know, walking around, handpicking his disciples, doing his thing all the way to his passion. Stage two was really the ministry of the apostles. When you read the book of like Acts, right? What they did, how they lived their life, the, you know, them trying to convert people as well. And then stage three was the, was the writing down of the life of Jesus, right? And authentically writing this down, right? A lot of times, you know, you see some historical critics saying like, oh, you know, it's oral tradition. It was manipulated. It was exaggerated. You know, all of these miracle stories of Jesus probably didn't actually happen, but, you know, it's word of mouth and things got blown out of proportion, blah, 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 blah. Um, and the, <laughs> first off, once again, it's an argument from silence. They have no record of that actually happening. Secondly, we have to remember that in, in ancient times, especially in, in Greek culture, which the Bible is written in Greek, um, memory had to be really, really strong because they didn't have like notepads, right? They didn't have, uh, you know, an iPhone with a notes feature to, to jot down things if they didn't remember it. They had to remember things and disciples were called disciples or students and their job was to memorize what their teacher taught in order that they may continue to teach what they taught, right? Um, and so with that, we can now turn to like the genres of the gospels, the four gospels, right? And so 
there's a lot of there was a lot of debate and still some debate over the genre of the gospels, right? You know, is it a, is it a drama? Is it a monograph? Is it an apocalypse? Is it a cult legend? Is it a midrash? A midrash being a, a style of uh, Old Testament uh, rabbinic teaching, right? And you know, this argument was going on for a long time, but then in recent uh, scholarship, really through you know continuing study of Greek culture and Roman culture. They, they came to this new theory, which I agree with, and the people who wrote the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible tend to agree with, namely that the Gospels are a form of Greco-Roman biography. And this is really, really helpful and very important to know when it comes to studying the Gospels, right? Because in Greco-Roman biographies, um, they weren't really too worried about chronological events, right? Don't be wrong. I mean, it, to the, to a certain degree, they, they wrote chronological events, but really, you know, this is what uh, the authors of the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible says, says these works known in the Hellenistic world as lives, Greek bioi or Latin vitae, um, did not so much analyze their subjects abstractly as display their character through a narration of their significant words and actions, right? So once again, it wasn't like uh, modern biographies or autobiographies that we're very concerned as moderns for things to be as you know accurate chronologically as possible. They need to be you know exact quotations, you know, because that's what really happened. But in Greco-Roman biographies in ancient times, they were really less concerned with exact quotations and less concerned with chron chronological events. They were more concerned with expressing, you know, like it says, the, the individual and the character of the individual, right? And so there's a few features here of Greco-Roman biography, right? The first one is they always focus on a single individual. And we can argue that the Gospels focus on one guy that's real important, very in particular, namely Jesus Christ, right? And the second one is they're, like they're broadly chronological, like we said, but they're materials are often organized uh, topically or thematically, right? And this is uh, comes to light, especially when you start comparing the synoptics to John, right? Because in John, Jesus goes to the temple and starts flipping tables real early in the gospel. But in the synoptics, that's what happens during Passion Week after the entrance into Jerusalem at the end of all the gospels, right? So you're like, wait, did this happen, you know, early on in Jesus' ministry? Did it happen late in Jesus' ministry? And it's one of those things where we have to remember that John puts that early on in order to teach his readers something, right? It's thematically organized or topically organized, right? Um, and so typically with these Greco-Roman biographies too, they're really only focused on one part of the subject's life, namely the part that they find the most important. And as we know, if you've read the, the, any of the Gospels, that really the Gospels focus on the last like three years of Jesus's life. Yes, we have the, the infancy narratives of Luke, right? We have some genealogies in Matthew and Luke as well. Um, we have some other stories of some other people occasionally, but really the focus is on the last three lives of Jesus, all his major miracles, all his major teaching up until his passion and death and resurrection. And then finally, and probably most importantly, according to the authors here, um, they say this, the greatness of the bio biographical subject is revealed through heroic acts of virtue and memorial words of wisdom. So now, obviously, in just reading all four of those, we can very much see how Greco-Roman biography, it sounds like a pretty solid uh, example of what the Gospels are, right? Greco-Roman biography. 
And so with all of this being said, I mean, there's a ton more to say about the Gospels in general, but I do want to talk briefly on the rest of the New Testament. So when it comes to the rest of the New Testament, right, we have the book of Luke, uh, book of Luke. Uh, we have the a book of Acts written by Luke that comes right after uh, the Gospels, and that was placed strategically there by the early church because chronologically it makes a lot of sense because in the very beginning of the book of Acts, we have the story of Jesus ascending into heaven 40 days after his resurrection and into the ministry of uh, the his disciples, right? And St. Paul in particular. And so chronologically, that makes a lot of sense. And then we have, like I said earlier, uh, Paul's letters. And so a lot of arguments, a lot of discussion has revolved around Pauline authorship, Pauline letters. And we are going to talk about that in detail when we get there. Um, but overall, there's a couple of you know really important themes throughout Paul's corpus, right? Um, but historically speaking, the one that tends to drive a lot of his letters is this controversy of the circumcision party, right? And this appears in the book of Acts as well. And so we have this reality that we have a sect of Jewish Christians, right? Um, Jews who converted to Christianity, who were adamant that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament had to be observed, including circumcision. And we talked about this on the show before, um, so I'm not going to go into big detail here. Basically, you know, it's a big deal because if you're going around evangelizing and then you're like, oh yeah, Jesus is risen from the dead. He's awesome. You, you, you're invited to join him in the kingdom of heaven. And that's, you're like, that sounds great. What do I need to do? It's like, oh, just get baptized. Oh, that's it. That's awesome. Yeah, well, there's also like one other small, you know, small surgical procedure you'll, you'll need to go through as well. And that's a big deal in the early church, especially when, you know, converting people. Um, so a lot of St. Paul's letters um, is him arguing you know, against the circumcision party, how that doesn't make sense, how that's no longer true. We're no longer older uh, under the old custodian of the Old Testament. Um, and so just like knowing that in a bird's eye view, so that way, you know, a lot of a lot of when Paul gets angry, especially too, a lot of times that's the circumcision party. Um, obviously, grace, justification, all this stuff comes up in his letters as well. And we'll talk about that. And we have talked about that on the show before. Um, and then we get into um, Catholic epistles and Hebrews, right? Um, so we have the letter of Hebrews, um, and that is, we don't know who wrote that letter, right? Um, it's, ar it's arguably that it wasn't St. Paul, because in the rest of St. Paul's letters, um, he introduces himself as I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or something along those lines. And the author of Hebrews doesn't do that. That being said, there are plenty of people who believe Paul wrote the letter and just didn't introduce himself. He wrote it uh, anonymously. Uh, and maybe that's the case. Honestly, I don't know. And I don't really have a strong opinion on the matter. It doesn't affect the content of the letter. Um, and then we have the Catholic epistles. So, um, you know, first, second, third, Peter, uh, arguably, arguable if Peter actually wrote um, part of the second or the third one. And then we have first, second, third, John. Um, and so then we have Jude um, and then first uh, James and, you know, jeez, uh, I'm trying to memorize all the books of the Bible now. Um, and so I'm doing this off the top of my head, by the way, no notes here on this episode, uh, really. Um, and so if I... <laughs> If I'm forgetting books, which I definitely am. Um, sue me, I guess. I don't know. Um, but uh, we have the, the Catholic the Catholic epistles, um, and they're really not super concerned about the circumcision party and uh, that argument like St. Paul is, uh, arguably because they're not the apostles to the Gentiles that St. Paul 
was, right? St. Paul's mission was to go to the Gentiles and convert as many Gentiles as possible, whereas Peter, James, and John were really concerned with their communities, with converting Jewish Jews to Christianity. Um, and so they're, they're dealing with other subjects, matters that are, you know, particular to their communities that they're writing to. And then, uh, you know, finally we get the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is Man, it's it's trippy, and you really gotta gotta understand some stuff before diving into that. Because if you don't, it's like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on? Um, but there's a few interpretive keys that we're going to talk about when we get there. So anyway, this big bird's eye view of the New Testament. All this to say is that the New Testament is bomb.com, y'all. Um, it's so so good, um, and it's historically reliable. Um, no matter what those punk historical critical people say, it is historically reliable. It is so good. It is the word of God. And whatever the human author affirms, the Holy Spirit affirms as well. Um, and the Holy Spirit uses humans in order to bring about, bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. Um, so like I said, next week, Ryan will be hopping back on the show. And we're going to dive right into the gospel of Matthew we're always going to talk about authorship, some debates on that. We're going to talk about overall literary structure, key themes, things to think about, and hopefully set you up for success when you read these books, in particular, reading the Gospel of Matthew next week, um, and in order to hopefully make more sense of the book, to bring out the truths of the faith in the book and bring out, out to life, especially in your prayer life too, right? Um, one of the things that somebody pointed out to us is in the intro, we always say, you know, we're going to teach you, you know, the proper way to pray with the Bible as well. And really, the reason we don't talk about prayer too much uh, is because, you know, the more you know about theology and, and the Bible, the better your prayer will be. Because you can pray wrong, right? And you can come to poor conclusions if your theology is whack, um, which a lot of people have. And so our hopes is that by opening up the Word, breaking up the Word in a specifically Catholic, academically excellent way, hopefully, um, <laughs> you're thinking like, Chase, I don't know, you don't talk too academic sometimes. Um, but anyway, hopefully it empowers you to read interpret and pray with sacred scripture through the eyes of faith and reason and empower you to to do it well so as always thank you so much again for joining me on catholics with bibles we will see y'all next week for the gospel of matthew adios all righty y'all once again thank you so much for joining me this week as i flew solo and was sad because ryan wasn't here but he's back next week and my life will be good again uh, anyway, don't forget to shoot up some prayers for Mr. Pollock and his uh, beautiful baby boy and his wife and her speedy recovery and their daughter. Um, and anyway, the whole family. They're great. Pray for them um, and uh, pray in Thanksgiving as well for new life. And so once again, thank you so much for joining me on Catholics with Bibles. We'll see you next time. God bless.